coming up on Economics Explored. Like the number one bit of evidence you want is you want a systematic review, a synthesis of results from several studies. So this could be a meta-analysis, I think they call it. So you want a comprehensive study that surveyed the field, that's looked at you know, dozens or hundreds of articles and figured out, well, what do we make of that and inform judgment? Welcome to the Economics Explored podcast. I'm your host, Gene Tunney. I'm a professional economist based in Brisbane, Australia, and I'm a former Australian Treasury official. This is episode 101 on how do we know what's true. Joining me to speak about uh, this issue is Tim Hughes, uh, my colleague at Adept Economics. Tim, good to have you back on the program. Hey, Gene, good to be here. It's great, Tim. Uh, Yes, it's good to have you as my first guest for the next 100 episodes of the podcast. So good to have you on. It's a great honour and uh, looking forward to the next 100. Excellent. Yes, yes. Uh, I expect you'll be on a few times in the the next 100. So yes, yes. I, I sincerely hope so. Excellent. So this is a question that you asked the other day. I think we're probably in the gym uh, and you asked this question and I thought it was a good question. So could you just tell us first and if you're listening in the audience and if you've got any questions regarding this episode or any comments or suggestions, we'll love to, we'd love to hear from you. I'll just, just say that at the outset. So as always, uh, if you can email us at uh, contact at economicsexplore.com, that'd be great. Uh, Tim, so again, just what was the motivation for that question? Why is this something that you're that's on your mind? Um, the, the question was, or uh, the point was, you know, how do we believe in what we believe? So how do we decide what's true and what's not true? This has always been um, important to humans, I think, since since forever. You know, since the start of communication and probably before that. You know, how do you trust um, that what you're making a decision on is true? Um, and it's never been more important than right now. There's a lot of uh, contention over so many different things. Uh, we're still in the middle of the pandemic, 2021. For anybody listening um, from the future, hi. <laughs> yes, hello. <laughs> um, and a lot of uh, contention over, uh, for instance, the vaccine, for an example. Any opinion that we have is only as good as the information that we base it on, I think is is a, a sort of home truth that I adhere to. Uh, certainly for me. And, you know, that's pretty much the same as uh, everybody. You know, if you believe in something, then, you know, the reasons that you believe that are based on information you've received one way or another. And of course, then we're open to all these different um, biases and prejudices uh, that come along with that. So we've talked before about different operating systems, I guess. Um, I know we're going to talk about uh, one that the military use. And, uh, And I found it interesting, like through going through school and education, we don't actually talk about this in, in any great detail, more than you just develop, you create your own sense of uh, what's true and what's not true, depending on your environment. Um, however, we don't necessarily have a very robust operating system to establish it. Well, maybe we don't realise it. So if you go through high school, for example, and you do, say, chemistry or physics, you'll start learning, and even in your science basics sort of science courses – in sort of junior high, you learn about the scientific method or yeah. you should learn about the scientific method. So that's where we should begin the conversation. So there's this idea that we seek the truth using a particular method, a scientific method, and the classic example is uh, experimentation, so doing experiments, whether that's with chemicals or dropping balls from towers, which might have been Galileo. Uh, I'll have to look that up just to be sure. <laughs> but you know, there's this idea of doing experiments. You have hypotheses and you try yeah. to confirm them through experimentation. Now, that, now that's not perfect, so we'll, we'll come to that a bit later. Science uses a variety of methods to figure out what's, what's true. It's not, it's not always that we can observe. We can make some observations and, uh, and prove a particular theory. It's not always the case that we can run experiments and prove particular theories. But over the centuries, we've figured out ways of knowing what's true. And I mean, certainly the results, like they speak for themselves, don't they, really? I mean, look at the advances we've made since the Renaissance, right? Yeah, Because completely. of the Enlightenment, because of the age of reason, through and, the application of the scientific method. And, and the thing is with that, and, and I think this is the crux of where I feel we're maybe falling over a little bit as a society uh, at the moment because, for instance, using science as an example. So 
It's great. Yeah, there's a hypothesis and then experiments done to sort of test that hypothesis, see what the data is and see if it checks out or not. And even with that, science still progresses um, with things that were currently accepted. Like in the in the day, it was accepted that the Earth was the centre of the universe. Like the scientists of the mm. day had come to that conclusion. That was their best that they could do at that point before it was then proven, was it Copernicus who showed that we actually revolve around the sun, you know, Mm. didn't go down well because this is all tied in then with religion as well as to you know what crosses over um is it pascal's wager where he is a scientist of the day who basically i shouldn't get into that too much because yeah this is uh pascal this is the yeah, so you know, mathematician like, yeah uh, and it's basically putting up against you know like oh uh, well i don't know if god's real as such however you know if he is real then i'm going to be in trouble if i don't believe in him yes uh, whereas if it's not real it doesn't really matter anyway so he hedged his bets and went with believing in god you know so it's one way of doing it but with going back to the science you know the way that science works dealing in absolutes or laws is actually really difficult because something might be a law and accepted but only until something else comes along which then might change that you know uh, it doesn't happen so much with laws but certainly with uh, hypotheses and and that kind of knowledge i guess and the way i think we fall over is like taking something as being true or not true as opposed to being well this is the best we've got yet as opposed to you know this is an ever-evolving um sort of uh science is ever-evolving you know things to, to say that this is it now and that's always going to be it is a dangerous position to be in and I think people look for black and white, right or wrong. Whereas, like, it's a better conversation to say, well, this is this appears to be this way, and this would uh, be the best we've got so far. Absolutely, and I think that was the view of Karl Popper. So he was a famous 20th century philosopher. Yeah, and I think this is probably the first thing I said to you when you raised this, when you asked this question the other the other week. It was in economics courses you do learn some philosophy of science or epistemology, right? So how do we know what we know? Yeah. Now, when I went through, Karl Popper was still very much in favour and uh, Popper's view is that we can never really prove anything. As scientists, what scientists have to do is be incredibly sceptical and try and disprove hypotheses, try and disprove theories. Yeah falsification and, and a theory is not a theory unless it's falsifiable and this is why he was very much against things like Marxism or Freud's theory uh, that underpinned his psychoanalysis because you could just sort of rationalise any sort of behaviour you could always find an explanation to explain why someone was hysterical or whatever or why wasn't there a revolution in in, in England or something why did the revolution happen in, in Russia when Marx probably wouldn't have predicted that but yet I don't know they, they were able to rationalise it in in some way. So when I went through, there was a very popular, well, it's still a popular book, What Is This Thing Called Science? And it was written by an Australian philosopher, Alan Chalmers, if I get the name right. And uh, it's a brilliant book because it, it answers a lot of these questions that you have. So what I might do is I might just, I might just read a passage from this because I think this gives a really good description of what Popper was saying and then we can chat about that. Popper himself tells the story of how he became disenchanted with the idea that science is special because it can be derived from the facts. The more facts, the better. Okay, so he's referring to this idea that science is about establishing the facts through, yeah. through I don't know, observation or, or just observing the world, induction, they, they call that. But he says that he became suspicious of the way in which he saw Freudians and Marxists supporting their theories by interpreting a wide range of instances of human behaviour or historical change respectively in terms of their theory and claiming them to be supported on this account. It seemed to Popper that these theories could never go wrong because they were sufficiently flexible to accommodate any instances of human behaviour or historical change as compatible with their theory. Consequently, although giving the appearance of being powerful theories confirmed by a wide range of facts, they could in fact explain nothing because they could rule out nothing. Popper compared this with a famous test of Einstein's theory of general relativity carried out by Eddington in 1919. Einstein's theory had the implication that rays of light should bend as they pass close to massive objects such as the sun. As a consequence, a star situated beyond the sun should appear displaced from the direction in which it would be observed in the absence of this bending. Eddington sought for this displacement by sighting the star at a time when the light from the sun was blocked out by an eclipse. 
It transpired that the displacement was observed and Einstein's theory was borne out. But Popper makes the point that it might not have been. By making a specific testable prediction, the general theory of relativity was at risk. It ruled out observations that clashed with this prediction. Okay, so the basic idea is that, I mean, Einstein's theory stacked up, okay, they were able to observe it, and it was something that could have been falsified, and so that was a good theory, and so that advances knowledge. Yeah. So that's Popper's prediction about, well, that's his view that what distinguishes science is scientists are sceptical and they're always trying to disprove their theories and challenge their theories, and the theories that survive are the ones that, that you can't disprove or there's just so much evidence in their favour or there's been so many people trying to challenge it. Yeah, and so that, that would be, and the best way to talk about that would be this is the best yet or this is the best we've got yeah. so far because to, to call something absolute is actually really limiting, even though we could say we're absolutely sitting here, uh, you know, a uh, respectable one and a half metres from each other, you know, and that's absolute, you know, so... Of course, you know, you can get into all these areas where things just get unnecessarily complicated. But when we talk about science and when we apply that to science, you know, I think it's a really good way to improve scientific discoveries, you know, like it makes a lot of sense. Uh, and then when we try and apply this to, well, how do we believe that what I'm seeing on the news is true or not? And, you know, how do I believe this or that, which is, I guess, more on the street level of, um, you know, on a day-to-day basis of what people, um, how people choose to believe in what they believe. And I think it gets into the area of confirmation bias and prejudices that we, environmentally, we grow up with that, whether we're aware of it or not, like depending on where you grow up and, you know, what uh, cultural background you have, you'll have those, you'll be surrounded by certain ways of thinking or accepted norms, you know, that, um, that you then grow up with, which become harder to challenge, no doubt, as you get, you know, as you go out into the world, because that also becomes part of your cultural identity, I guess, you know, or your, you know, part of your, uh, how you view yourself. And so these become very difficult um, areas to change, you know, and so when these conversations and arguments come up that you see, there's far more than just the truth behind all of this. There's all this um, identity and the will to be right and the uh, concern about being wrong, uh, which which are the drivers, I think, uh, in a lot of the conversations and the belief um, systems that that we see from a lot of people, because there's um, a lot. I mean, for instance, taking flat earthers as an example, you know, for for some people believe that the Earth is flat, and which is fascinating. And like you know, um, each to their own. That's fine. But that there's um, cognitive dissonance. So, for instance, for me, there's a, there's plenty of evidence to suggest that the world is a sphere, and um, you know, I I believe that evidence having. You know, again, like you have to filter this through and you have, we all have our own system of, of doing this. And I've never really questioned it, which is, I guess, part, partly where that question came from. You know, what system, is there a system that we can follow that might be better, you know, for everyone to sort of hang their own personal things off? Or is it just this thing of like, it's, a, it's common sense, it's um, acquired knowledge, it's, it's something we take for granted, I guess, and never really questioned. Um, but seeing so many different things now, like, you know, if people want to believe that the earth is flat, it's fine. So let's put that through a rigorous um, sort of process uh, which and, and see how it goes as opposed to the world being a sphere. You know, complete, completely sitting on the fence and seeing how that stacks up. What does that process look like? There isn't anyone who truly believes that, is there? I mean, you. Like there well, are, I believe there is. <laughs> no, I mean, well, I, I mean, mean the but there, is, are, there are a lot of beliefs you could, yeah, say are similar to believing that the Earth is flat. Completely, and this is like you know, and and it's there's rabbit holes everywhere. That, yeah, that, but I think the internet has provided a lot of these avenues. For instance, um, it's always been the case conspiracy theories and things like that abound, and of course, the reality is with all of those that some of them will be correct. You know, some of them, well, yeah, somebody is trying to hide something. Um, but to the extent that we see at the moment, I mean, like another one, for instance, um, you know, faking the moon landing. <laughs> Which uh, is just wacky, right? Well, I, I find that, I mean, I, you know, knowing enough about human nature, as you get older, you understand how people tick. And there's a big one for me. I mean, I believe it anyway, that, uh, that we landed on the moon and we did all that. You can't fake, people can't keep quiet in mass numbers about what they, you know, they can't cover up something uh, and never be leaked and... So, I mean, and again, but this is my personal, I guess you could say, bias or prejudice uh, against that particular conspiracy. I, you know, I, I think, yeah, absolutely, we got onto the moon. 
But well, look, what I'm interested yes. in is, like, you know, what have we got then? Like the science has their hypothesis, and so what have we got? You know, what would be a what would be a reasonable thing for us to hang our belief system off? You know, okay. what rigorous sort of process can we put that through? Okay, this is where I come to this this other book that I've read recently mm. that I think is very good on this question. It's by Naomi Oreskes, and she's a professor of I think it's the history of science at Harvard University, and She's written this book, Why Trust Science, which is brilliant. She's there's some really good YouTube videos. Of I saw her. that TED talk. You yeah, yeah, that was really good. Yeah, which uh, touched on that area that you mentioned about Einstein's um, yes. theory and the way that the uh, light bent around the sun uh, in 1919 when that was yeah. proven to be correct. Yeah. She probably read that same book, Alan Chalmers' book, so. which is quite famous. <laughs> <laughs> Published by UQ Press and incidentally University of Queensland Press. Free plug. Yeah. Yep. Uh, you can get it on Kindle. I've got a. I've got it on Kindle, so I'll put a link in the show notes. So if you're listening, you're interested. Everyone you can, gets a plug. You can find it. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Okay. And um, I mean, she wrote a book about seven or eight years ago called Merchants of Doubt, which is looking at this question uh, of climate change and why there are people who deny climate change. Now you can argue about whether you, what you should do about climate change. To what extent is it a future problem? But you can't really deny that it's occurred to an extent, okay? Like you have to accept that. Well, you can, but going back but, to... But that's not the consensus not scientific, my, my scientific that's, opinion. That's right. So, again, yeah. put that through some rigorous yeah. process, you know. Yeah, but, but this is where it gets tricky. And, um, I mean, she's very honest about it all. And she says that, look, even what Popper's saying is not completely... That's not... There are problems with Popper's approach too because... It could be your experiment, like you're trying to falsify a, a hypothesis. You might not run the right experiment. You might not have as accurate measurement equipment as you need or there could be a problem with the setup of it. So you, th- there could always be problems with that. What she says, so I, I think this is a good summary of it. She quotes this, uh, probably Longino. Longino summarises, to say that a theory or hypothesis was, ex- was accepted on the basis of objective measure methods does not entitle us to say it is true, but rather that it reflects the critically achieved consensus of the scientific community. And it's not clear we should hope for anything better. Now, this is Naomi Oreskes uh, speaking, uh, writing, I agree, but where does that leave us? To recapitulate, there is now broad agreement among historians, philosophers, sociologists and anthropologists of science that there is no singular scientific method and that scientific practice consists of communities of people making decisions for reasons that are both empirical and social using diverse methods. But this leaves us with the question, if scientists are just people doing work like plumbers or nurses or or electricians, and if our scientific theories are fallible and subject to change, then what is the basis for trust in science? So this is a good point she makes. They're subject to change. Like At any point in time, the scientific theory could be wrong, okay, because... Up until the early 20th century, we thought that Isaac Newton had told us everything we needed to know about reality, okay? Yeah, and then yeah. and then Einstein comes along and tells us that what, time is illusory or whatever it is, and, and we have the quantum mechanics uh, theorists and who are telling us that the world behaves really oddly at, at the subatomic level. Um, I mean, we're not going to get into that on Economics Explore because it'll quickly get lost. I think yeah. that's really interesting yes. though, because that that, um, that feeds into scientific um, uh, theory being the best yet, you know, the best so yeah. far. Um, and I think what what makes this interesting uh, or what messes it up is that we, um, as humans, we seek certainty. You know, we, we want to be certain about things. We, you know, there might be a saber-toothed tiger outside the cave. Well, I, I like to know, is there, isn't there? You know, like, you know, it's better to know yes or no as a very – rough sort of like example but it's that thing of like we, we don't I think it takes a lot more energy to live in uncertainty and so for instance having a conversation to live with the probabilities of all these different things takes up a lot more energy um, and we're drawn to certainty we we like to know so, so for instance somebody talking confidently about something saying you know, a very uh, convincing argument or a position on a certain subject it's attractive to be drawn towards that to the point where you know you you sort of pitch in and say, "Yeah, I'm with that person on what that person is saying," because that makes sense to me. And if you and that's fine to do that. But if you do that with a view of 
then not listening to other opinions and other 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 perspectives and everything, then that well, I think is where it becomes problematic because in that um, safe space of being certain about something, you're then refusing or not listening to anything else, which may like uh, like all those scientific theories. I mean, they're very robust and strong of, at their time, from the brightest minds, you know, through history up until that up until that point. And so you'd be well placed to say, yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. This is now it, you know. But to call anything it is where the problem is. I think I think this is the best so far. Allows you to to move still to be open to other things. And I think that is where. Um, personally, I think that's where the the problems lie, is seeking absolutes and and sticking with absolutes instead of just going with the best so far and being open to being being more comfortable in um, in not having hundred percent certainty over certain things. Yeah, that's a good point, Tim. So, what do you think about this idea of Oreskes? That uh, I mean, why we should trust science it's it's because well this is her explanation what is the reason for the basic the basis for the trust in science i suggest that our answer should be twofold one it's sustained engagement with the world and two it's social character so the first point is crucial but easily overlooked so she's saying that natural scientists study the natural world social scientists study the social world that's what they do Um, so they're always engaged they're trying to figure out what's going on Okay, she, her view is without the trust in experts, society would come to a standstill. So she talks about plumbers and nurses. So you've got to trust experts, okay? Scientists are our, are our designated experts for studying the world. Therefore, to the extent that we should trust anyone to tell us about the world, we should trust scientists. This is not the same as faith. Okay, and so she talks about how we should still be sceptical. So her view is that we should trust the consensus of scientists, not individual scientists, and particularly if they're not, if they're talking outside of their field, yeah. And this becomes an issue, I think, in the climate change debate because a lot of the the people who have been most vocal about climate change have come from other disciplines like geology or something like that. And the other thing she points to is that you should also look to see what are they getting funding from another organisation. So, like, what's a credible? What is a credible study? So, a credible study is going to be one that's in a scientific journal that's been peer reviewed. And it's not, say, produced by a think tank, for example. Yeah, and of course that is um, absolutely true. You know, you get scientific papers that are funded by different um, uh, companies that have a, a vested interest in a certain outcome from that scientific study. Well, um, I think the the worst example we should yeah. be questioned. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. The worst examples historically were scientists that tried to deny the link between smoking and lung cancer yeah. and they i think they've been funded by tobacco companies right completely so, and that stuff yeah. unless, uh, undoubtedly is going on today as well you know so this um, i think it's a really fundamentally important thing to question yeah you know what, what's put in front of us like you know which is again pointing to where we are now there's a lot of debate and um, concern over vaccines and things like that. I think that's perfectly normal. Like, And I think it's a good thing that people question it, just to, well, just well, to widely yeah, accept well, everything that's put our way isn't a good way for any society to be. But it's on the balance of everything. Like, this is where we come to things that aren't absolute. It's not going to be... It's not going to be perfect. Whichever way you go with any of this, whichever way you're inclined to go, is not going to be perfect. But it might just... Whatever you choose to do might just be um, the, the way it weighs up for you yeah, that represents the best opportunity forward to go and get a vaccine um, for a lot of people. If somebody wants to choose against it, that's that's their that's their right. But it's the evidence of uh, probability, you know, the weight of probability. You know, yeah. what, what's what's the best so far in this certain situation? Okay, well, let's talk about the vaccines. I think that's a good question. So, how do we know that the vaccines are well safe enough for us to? To take, or I mean, there is an in, there are very small risk, particularly with AstraZeneca or the yeah. blood clotting, and but that's just you know really small, like vanishingly small. As I understand it, it's four in a million uh, would have a clot, and one in a million would die. Right, that's as I understand it. Yeah, and that's uh, like I say, and that's not absolute. So, um, yeah. and I understand this is very contentious, but yeah. But we've made a judgment as a society that we should take it on balance. It. It's better for society overall for people to get vaccinated 
and, and the majority but, yeah, has, because, has gone with that. Yeah, because yeah. the COVID nineteen is just so such a concern that yeah. you know it's worth running that that risk. Okay, now how do we know that that vaccine is safe enough to deploy across the population? And it's because they've run clinical trials. Okay, so they've done, they've run trials, so they've used an experimental method. And what you do typically is this thing called a randomised controlled trial, where you have a treatment group and a control group. So I chatted about on with Andreas Chai, who's a lecturer out at Griffith, about this and how yeah. they do this in economics. Now I'll, I'll link to that episode in the show notes, where they're looking at um, particular interventions in developing economies. I don't know, uh, giving uh, people in a village like giving them a fifty dollars or cash payment or something, and seeing how that compares with what if you give them, uh, I don't know, a, a power tool or something. I don't know or a a power drill. I don't know what the okay. exact. I can't remember any of the exact experiments, but they'll run little experiments like that and see what the outcomes are, right? And whether people are better off or not. But with the vaccinations, you'd you'd give some one group the vaccination of with the proper vaccine, and then another group you give a placebo, so it wouldn't. And you'd see whether the outcomes differ to what extent they differ, and whether there's a statistically significant impact, and like differences in well, you're as whether you avoid COVID, like how, what else? I mean, you'd be interested in whether if you get infected, are you, are you bet are the symptoms uh, are there fewer symptoms? Is it doesn't affect you as much? Yeah, they'd look at transmission, that sort of thing. So you'd you'd see how the control group differs from the treatment group, and so that's an example of a of an experimental method. Yeah. Now economists are trying to. We should probably talk about economics and how it's. How it, how science, how a scientific method is applied in economics, and one of the problems we've got is that all the data, a lot of the data, we've, well, we've got historical data, right? So we've got all this econometric. We try and use econometric techniques to analyse economic data, so GDP and inflation. But there are so many influences on all of these economic variables, and everything's happening at the same time, and it's very difficult to model and figure out whether, say, well. A, a major question in economics is to what extent do minimum wages, like if we increase the minimum wage, to what extent does that increase unemployment? Yeah. And it's difficult to do that using time series data because the, you could introduce, you could lift up the minimum wage at the same time your economy's booming, there's a mining boom, so you're probably not going to see any impact of a minimum wage, right? Now, what economists are trying to do is they're now looking for things called natural experiments or quasi-experiments. What you want to do is try and find a city, such as Seattle, for example, which increased the minimum wage, and quite a bit it went from about 8 I don't know, was it, I think it went up to $15 US. I'll, I'll put the exact numbers in the show notes. I did a previous episode on this. And what you'll do is you'll try and compare Seattle, where they increased the minimum wage with like a region right next to Seattle yeah, and see, because you'd assume, okay, they're going to have similar factors affecting the economies, or well, that's the hypothesis, and let's see if restaurant employment falls in Seattle. Yeah, like how, do, how does a change in restaurant employment, the difference between that in Seattle and the neighbouring region, what's the difference? Because if, because if it increases more, like it, if, okay, because the economy, the overall economy could be growing and so you still might see an increase in employment, but the increase in employment in Seattle may not be the same increases in the other area. It may, it may be a different rate of employment. So you're looking at that difference. This is called a difference in differences technique. All right. Yeah, so, 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 what they're do, so what you're doing is so basically you're trying to say Seattle's the control, the, the treatment group where there's the increase in the minimum wage, uh, and, and then there's a control group which is a, yeah. a region next to it. And, and what did they notice? What were the outcomes of that? Well, basically, so there's a I'll link to in the show notes to a study. So this is a major study that's ongoing, and it's in uh, I think it's out of University of Washington. I'll put a link in the show notes. But basically, they found that there there was a small, a modest decrease in hours worked. There wasn't any increase in unemployment, but the people working in those fast food restaurants, there'd be a slight reduction in hours which is consistent with the hypothesis that you increase minimum wages, you, that should lead to a reduction in the demand for, for labour, but it wasn't, it wasn't huge. Okay, and so there are a lot of studies that show something similar, and 
that was basically the consensus I or the view, the consensus view that I came across when I was looking at those minimum wage studies. That look, there's an there is an impact, but it's not a huge impact. It's not a large impact. It's it's quite it's quite small. But that could be because when politicians are making decisions about minimum wages, they're very conscious of well, what could be the employment impacts of it, right? Because they're going to be lobbied by the business lobby. So our Chamber of Commerce and Industry Queensland here in in Queensland, they, or 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 then the national counterpart of that, the uh, Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry, they will always put a submission forward when there's the national wage case, when the the Fair Work Commission's deciding whether to raise wages or not. The employer groups will say, okay, we're not sure that what you, the unions want or what is affordable, so we suggest something a bit smaller. So what would their concerns be? That um, I mean, I guess with that, who's paying for the uh for the raising the wages, would that be the restaurants in that? Instance? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and then they pass it on to consumers, right? So to an extent, they'll pass it on to So there's a lot consumers. of uh, consequences from that, from yeah. that, that thing, obviously. And so um, uh, that that wasn't uh, that didn't result in a fewer people going to the restaurants and restaurants closing down, etc. Uh, well, no, they didn't find that. I mean, that, what they looked at was they did look at the impact on prices, if I remember correctly, and I think prices did rise. So to an extent, they you'd, passed you'd it on to consumers. So, yeah. Yeah. And so that should impact the demand for the for the restaurant's product, right, For the to an extent. And that's probably what's driven the reduction in hours. I'll, I'll, I'll have to have a closer look, but that's a good question. Like, it's interesting. Well, yeah. it's on any, in any region, for instance, you're going to have a fringe and wherever that fringe is on the, the, the neighbouring region that didn't have the increase – you would imagine they would be the ones who would struggle the most, uh, where people might have a choice to go a street away and eat for less for the same mm. meal. But uh, interesting nonetheless. Yeah, yeah. So I guess what that is to illustrate is that economists are very conscious about the need to apply a scientific approach, a scientific method, and they're trying to look for what are called natural experiments. Or, and, and so, yeah, we might have to... We're going to come back to this, I think, in a future episode, aren't we? Well, I mean, just talking about it and like, uh, and of course, everyone's got an opinion on this, which is great. Yeah. You know, like, as, as everyone should. And so um, it's such a massive subject because it, it colours everything that we do, everything that we do, like, you know, what we wear, um, how we vote, most importantly, you know, like, uh, and and all these different decisions that we make based on what we see or perceive to be the truth aren't necessarily the truth. It's just our interpretation of it, and it, it fits in with our belief systems and our little biases and prejudices, you know, which it, which is okay and understandable to an extent. But I think it gets also to an extent where I think there are better decisions that can be made with a better process, you know, a better way of looking at things. And of course, you know, straight away that's contentious you know but it's 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 to be okay being uncomfortable with the uncertainties and you know of not necessarily being right or wrong black and white you know all these things that we seek i think um you know different uh there's a little bit of airspace under this on on tv with shows like in australia q and a which is i'm sure all around the world it's the same kind of thing where you get a bit of a debate happening but the powers or the not the powers of debate but the uh the quality of debate seems to be a very low uh, expectation. And I know, for instance, here in Brisbane, we've been along to the Brisbane Dialogues, uh, which you introduced yeah, me to. Yeah, so you might want to say a few, a few words on that because you're, you're better versed in that. But they're a good example, I think, of an attempt to have a better conversation. Yes, yeah, so they're very motivated by concern over, well, the way I explained it when I did my episode on climate change, on decarbonisation, was that they're sort of, semi-retired business people yeah. and they've a few of them have done very well for themselves and they're increasingly they're finding they're having difficult conversations with their children or, or their children's friends about or their nieces and nephews about climate change because that generation of people in their 20s are, are very concerned about it and you know the, they think that the older generations have ruined the planet i don't think that's true i would disagree with that but there's no doubt that Climate change is occurring, and at some stage we we have to address it. I, I don't think it's a it's a code red. I think that's a bit alarmist. But you know, as I explained in that episode, we probably do need to do something about it. So their idea is like, okay, how do we have a rational conversation where we 
we're okay we're listening to people and what they're concerned about and we're trying to be constructive and we're trying to figure out well what's the best way to deal to deal with this to respond to it without getting into uh, either the alarmism or the denialism okay trying to find that middle road now i think that's difficult right that's a that's a big task to try and do that it, it is uh, like um, one of the dangers of course i mean because I, I can understand urgency with this because it, there's you know there's inertia there's a lot of i think the alarmism comes when people are aware that to change anything you have to make a big fuss you know, like it has to be over the top you know when, when the yeah. pendulum has to swing back the other way there's a lot of effort that has to there's an excessive force that needs to push it possibly you know beyond the median line so it settles back in the middle you know to where everyone's pretty okay yeah you know and that, that's across so many different things and so i i get people being uh, alarmist and having a sense of urgency about for instance using the climate um changes uh, as an example and my, my personal view as well is that I, I think there's plenty of evidence there um to suggest that yeah what we're doing is messing up the planet and i understand younger generations come in to, to inherit this and then pointing the finger at the older yeah. generation saying like what are you guys done like you know what what are you guys doing now to fix this and so i, I get that too absolutely you know but um uh, i think there's people of all ages who are willing to uh to make a change on that particular subject as well i don't think climate change is the issue anyway um, because whether you believe it or not it makes sense to me to clean it up what we do know, what, what is an absolute, for instance, is that we don't have an infinite atmosphere. We don't have infinite water in the oceans. There's a lot in the atmosphere, a lot of air in the, uh, in the atmosphere. There's a lot of water in the oceans, but it's not infinite. Uh, but we have the ability to produce a lot of pollutants, a lot of rubbish, a lot of everything that we're throwing into our waterways, into the oceans, into our food chains, into the air. It would make sense, whether you believe in climate change or not, to clean that up. Because if it's not a problem now, at some point, it certainly will be. And whether climate change or what we're seeing is an indicator of that, like I said, I personally believe that is the case. But whether you believe it's not, it would be a good thing to do to clean it up. I think we can learn from indigenous tribes around the world who see themselves as custodians of the land. I don't think that's a bad thing at all. We should see ourselves as custodians of this planet and, yeah, look after it. It's the only one we've got. Um, look at all the other options we've got, like where, you know, populating Mars or whatever. We're much better off making this the place to stay, to, to be, and to look after it. So regardless of, you know, that's, that's why I feel climate change isn't actually, it doesn't matter that much to believe in that, to be fighting over that, to be arguing over that is just wasting time. We should be putting our efforts into cleaning it up, whether we believe in climate change or not. Okay. Boom. Look- Gen- mic, mic well, drop, that, that's your mic drop <laughs> moment. I think that we might have to come back to climate change yeah, in a future it's episode. Enough. It is contentious, but, but, but what, that's my point is worth it. It, it, it <laughs> is certainly contentious. The point I would make is that a lot of the alarmism or the alarm and the the push to do something urgently, like not open any more coal mines in Queensland or stop coal mining yeah. overnight, yeah. right, which would cause immense dislocation and job losses in regional Queensland. So I, yeah. I'm not a big fan of that, okay? But there, there I, are people... I agree, I agree. Yeah, but there are people who will look at the modelling. So there's some modelling. So this is yeah. one of the big controversies in science at the moment. To what extent do we rely upon numerical models, so computer simulation models? So so much of science, and this is a point that Naomi Oreskes makes, so much of science is now done in uh, Excel spreadsheets, right, or... Or, or, or whatever the computer simulations, yeah, com- computer simulations yeah. of the climate. Uh, well, I mean, economists learned decades ago that well, computer simulations of the economy aren't worth much, right? I mean, you just can't model that sort of complexity. Now, I'm not a climate scientist, but my guess is, and from I guess my reading of the debate is that a lot of these climate models aren't very good either, right? Some of them predict, you know, really far out global warming that we haven't seen or they have predicted that in the past. And, and I think, just just nipping in there, I think that's yeah. part of that thing of like to make a change, it's got to be a big push. And so it may, it may come over as being alarmist and it may be alarmist, it may be over the top, but it's that thing, if that then, if that little push or big push there allows the pendulum to come back to a point where we're making significant change in a reasonably short period of time, then that's, what, that's why that, I think that happens. But Tim, then how do we trust science? That's the problem, isn't it? So, like, 
I mean, why we trust science is because it should be this consensus body of opinion or the the understanding of the world. And I think if if they take if scientists or or people in the policy game or if they're if they're saying, oh well, this analysis is fine because it's going to wake people up, then I'm not sure that's that's good for us in the long run because that w- would lead to distrust in in science. No, uh, I'm not I, saying I they're agree, doing yeah. that. I, I'm but I'm just saying that I'm not sure that's a good strategy. Yeah, I mean, for instance, I'm coming from a position of prejudice on this particular thing right. because of. Um, yeah, my personal belief is I, I feel I've seen enough evidence to suggest that, yes, we're making an impact on the yeah. climate. And um, I'm, like I say, I, like I, I don't see that as the biggest issue. I, I mean, it is an issue, of course, because otherwise, if it's not, if it wasn't an issue, we'd say, yeah, well, let's just keep burning coal. Let's keep doing everything that we're doing. But what I, what I see is unequivocal is, is that, yeah, we're polluting this planet and seeing that continue, um, whether it's climate change, which like I said, I do believe it's happening, but whether it's in all the other different ways of polluting our oceans to the point where we are killing off species of fish that we rely on to, you know, as nutrition or, you know, just as part of the, as an environmental impact, like uh, to see all of that damage done on land and oceans and species. And of course, ultimately us as humans, like as a species on this planet, we will suffer as well. I don't see, I've seen everything that I, I feel I would need to see to suggest that we're doing um, a lot of damage to the planet with our current practices. So to change our practices for whatever reason in as short a period of time as possible, I think is a really good way forward. It's best practice to look after this planet. Okay. And so what you're saying about, for instance, the uh, the coal mining, yeah, this this needs to be done sensibly. Mm. Like for instance, this conversation just a few years ago would be different, like with um, renewable energy. It's gone so far in a reasonably short period of time, in the last um, five or ten years. Yes, for sure. And so it's far more viable to be looking at renewable energies being, yeah, that's a viable uh, en masse sort of like source of energy. Like now that we've, we've got, we're getting closer and closer towards having our, our energy sourced through renewables, you know, which is like, that's a huge game changer. And so, of course, for feathering out uh, fossil fuels and, um, you know, the... The, uh, the the fuels that are causing potentially a lot of damage, you know, like uh, is a natural process, which is already happening. So to accelerate that process in an unnatural way, you know, like with farm, uh, mining communities rather, and, uh, you know, I understand that's a big, that's a big deal. You know, I grew up in the north of England and, you know, mining was a huge part of, when we talk about social and, uh, you know, what we, the environmental uh, elements that are into us, you know, with our, with our thought processes and our, our belief systems and everything, then yeah, you look at a mining community and that's instilled from birth, you know, that's ingrained. So it's very difficult to change that in a very short period of time. Uh, and that would be the same for any mining community, any community dependent on those fossil fuels. But with progress, I guess you could call it, towards renewable energy, I feel that that is yeah, something that has to has to make way. And hopefully, you know, that can be done respectfully and uh, being, uh, you know, swapped over with newer ways of making a living. You know, new um, with renewables, I don't think they're going to need as many people, but, mm, you know. That's right. You just have your solar arrays or your You can't keep a mining community going just to sort of like keep everyone busy, you know, like, mm. uh, but uh, that's just the way it is, yeah. We'll have to come back to this. Uh, yeah, it's a big one. <laughs> it's a big one, Tim, because I want to <laughs> say a couple more things. Uh, one thing I want to make sure that we get into this conversation is this idea of, well, science can tell us about the world, and so we want to get that consensus view on the facts. That doesn't necessarily tell us what we should do. No, so we've gone a, off track this, for a wee bit, haven't we? There's this is-or problem, <laughs> okay? So, and value judgments come into it. I've talked about this before. This, this is-or problem from David Hume, one of the philosophers of the Scottish Enlightenment, uh, and he said, well, just because... You can't necessarily go from a statement about what is to what you ought to do. And so this is something that comes up in COVID, right? So we know COVID is a serious disease, okay? Not going to argue about that. We know that possibly lockdowns could work in some circumstances. There's a debate over that. I think if you do them early enough, as we have in some places in Australia, then possibly it's worked to uh, to stop the spread. But then they're costly, okay? There's a cost to those lockdowns. 
the science. No science can tell us whether we should lock down or not because there are a whole range of considerations. There's the fact that, okay, you're going to reduce the risk of people who are at risk of dying from COVID of dying. That's, yep, that's right. Uh, but at the same time, you're going to be, you could be shutting down people's businesses. You're making life difficult for them. There are Australians who can't get back to Australia because of the limits on the number of people we take into the, the country. And they could die overseas, right? They could, they could get COVID Possibly. in India or Britain or wherever. Okay, so w there's no natural progression from the science to what we should do. I just wanted to get that in there because I think that's an important point that isn't, doesn't always come across. It's not always clear in discussions whether we're, we're arguing about facts about the world or whether we're arguing about what we should do. It's all sort of mixed together, and I think a lot of the problems we have in... I, I, think, I think part of that is accepting that, yeah, it's going to be imperfect. I mean, and, uh, and we're, for instance, with, uh, again, looking at you know, the pandemic now, we're in the process of learning more and more about it as we go through it. So it's understandable that there's debate and that there's um, uh, disagreement and... Know heated discussion in a lot of different places, um, and you can see people's natural urge, understandably, to find absolutes. You know, which of course, like you're saying, there, there aren't. There's not. There's not the perfect way of dealing with this. There's not the obvious um, thing to do, even though the lockdowns are very uh, successful in some places, not in all places. You know, and I guess that comes down to how um, people adhere to them. I can't imagine. Um, I mean, I, I think it's been a good response, for instance, from where we are in Queensland. But yeah, how long can it go on for? Uh, it's difficult, and there's not always a clear answer. You know, I yeah. think I think the answers will probably come, or better, better perspective will come from looking back at, on this and seeing how it all pans out. You know, because we're in the process, we're right in the process, which is why it's such a contested debate. Yeah, because normally, for instance, with the malaria, I don't, I don't remember what happened with the malaria vaccine. You know, it was tested over a period of time, and uh, it came out. You know, whatever. So if you went, do to you some, mean tuberculosis? Well, no, malaria. So for instance, if is you there want a to vaccine go, against malaria? Well, you, well, whatever you get injected with, you know, you, if you go to certain parts of the world, you need to get the malaria jab. You know what I mean? You know, so to prevent you from getting malaria, yeah, we <laughs> should have right. researched that one. But yeah, oh, I've had some I, vaccines to go travelling because I've, yeah. I've been to some uh, exotic places. So I, 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 you're just bragging now, Jim. Yeah. <laughs> but it's that thing, yeah. I mean, like, so you get the malaria jab. I, I, yeah? I could never remember what they were for. You'd go to the travel doctor and you get. Is another interesting yes. one. So, like, it was never a thing. He said, "Yeah, okay, I have to do it." Whereas, like now, the scrutiny on these vaccines mm. is intense because it's new and it, it's in the process. So, I was going to say that, like, that would have gone through the scientific process and and tested and had the groups yeah. and all that different thing, and then come out to be the accepted uh, vaccine or um, jab that you had to get for that. So um, that yeah. Whereas it's contested now, as it should be, because we're in the process of doing all that. We we don't know yet. And so it's the best we've got so well, far. Well, I guess we did it rapidly. So they they did do all the tests. They did all the tests that they that they should have done, uh, and they they were able to do it very quickly because it was such an emergency. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so like, the, I, I don't think there's any doubt about the. I mean, nothing's perfectly safe, but I think these are are safe enough to that. that I've they, had my AstraZeneca because yeah. it represents what I feel is the best so far yeah. of of the next action to take. It's not perfect, but that was my personal choice. And, you know, same as if you jump into a plane. Yeah. Well, in the old days when you jumped into a plane, I trusted that the pilot and crew would get us there, that the, you know, the the ground control would do their job and that the mechanics and maintenance people would keep us in the air. It's not perfect because planes crash, you know, but... Um, but not as much as they once did. Yeah, because we've learned from the past, because right. we've analysed what yeah, happened. Yeah, yeah. We've had a scientific approach to it. And we've, I've trusted yeah. all of that process. You exactly. know, like, uh, you know, so, I mean, it doesn't mean it's perfect and don't think doesn't mean that something won't happen, but it represents it, the best chance of going from A to B. <laughs> okay. So I think what we've worked out, so, yeah, there are some, va these vaccines, there's a consensus of the scientific community that, that these vaccines are effective and, and relatively safe. And so it's this consensus. That's I think that's a good point that Naomi Oreskes makes. There's mm. look for the consensus, and so don't be completely. It don't, it's not blind trust. So what she says. So this is a good passage from page sixty of a book. It is a call for informed trust in the consensual conclusions of scientific communities 
but not necessarily in the views of or opinions of individual scientists, particularly not when they stray outside their domain of expertise. I think I've said that before. I guess a couple of other things I want to inject into the conversation there was before we wrap up, there was a great paper by Andrew Lee, who's been on the podcast. Andrew's a member of parliament here in Australia. He's a member down in Canberra. He's in the opposition at the moment. But he's a net former economist. He was pre- professor at ANU, Australian National University. He was in the Treasury for about a year back in t- 2008. He wanted to get some practical experience. So he ended up in the same group of Treasury in the fiscal group, which looks after the budget. So I, I met Andrew uh, back in the day. Uh, but he wrote a great paper when he was at Treasury called the what is it? Hierarchy of evidence. It's about evidence. So how do we know what's true? What's the ev- what evidence should we believe in? What evidence should social policy makers use? I'll put a link in the show notes. And he refers to this thing called the UK government's evidence hierarchy for policy makers. And they go through a range of different studies and what's the most believable. And so what you really want to do, what you want like the number one bit of evidence you want is you want a systematic review, a synthesis of results from several studies. So this could be a meta-analysis, I think they call it. So you want a comprehensive study that surveyed the field, that's looked at you know, dozens or hundreds of articles and figured out, well, what do we make of that, an informed judgment. Now, in economics, there was a, there's a thing called the Journal of Economic Literature, and what it does is it will have authoritative surveys of different fields in economics and like looking at all the studies and, and they'll get like one of the top economics professors in the world, like someone from Harvard or wherever yeah. or UCLA, UCLA or whatever. Someone like yourself. MIT, well, one day maybe, <laughs> yes, yes. I uh, haven't pursued an academic career. But, uh, but yeah, they get someone authoritative to review it and make conclusions about, well, what does it say? And then there'd be a peer review process of that where they'd have their pe- you know, other people review what they've done and say, okay, is, it, is that a fair summary or not? And so... Th- there's a systematic review, and that could be on, for example, on minimum wages so or uh, the gender pay gap. So when I did my gender pay gap, gap episode, one of the first places I went to was a review article in Journal of Economic Literature. So you look for those authoritative reviews. Yeah. Number two is a randomised controlled trial. So we chatted about that before. Do you, yeah. do you get that concept of a randomised? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and yeah. and like, uh, I know that that's the basis of... You know, a lot of things that we accept today have, have come from those origins or have gone through that process. Yeah, and the essential thing is you a- allocate the population randomly to different groups. So you randomise who gets the, the treatment, could be a vaccine, and who gets the, the control, like the placebo. And that's the kind of area that's been squished with this process. It's like there hasn't been – that's been rushed, that, um, that well, process, which, which of course – causes concern for others but like you know normally it would be over a longer period of time this has all come through but i think they still did it the proper way yeah, yeah. I, I don't want to i don't want to raise any doubts about no, no, about no, that and same um, but it's that thing of like that process happened quicker than what would have normally have happened you know which raises concern for people too which i, I think get. because it was an emergency and that they just yeah yeah they gave the approval let yeah let's just do this let's do it now let's not yeah. do whatever Jump through all the bureaucratic hoops. They would have had. thrown more money at it than would have yeah, normally yeah, been exactly. available. So too. we're not we're not raising. We don't want to get no. kicked off. Uh, off the air, so <laughs> we're not raising any doubts whatsoever. And I don't think you meant to do that either. No, I'm not. No, for me, uh, the, the reason is is to be understanding of like happy is it's okay that people are concerned about all of this. You know, like it's okay for people to be questioning it. I think it's good, but then that's where I think. Um, to, uh, you know, then say, okay, well, what's a good process to follow with those questions, with that concern, you know, instead of just being uh, talking heads from opposing sides of the table. Yeah, okay. Got to wrap. I'll let you go on. We'll keep going. I'm going to wrap up pretty quickly. Okay. Uh, number three is a quasi-experimental study, similar populations compared. So this is this natural or quasi-experiment Example. So yeah. Seattle minimum wage study, for example. I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes to that. Four, pre-post study, results compared before and after intervention. The problem with this, of course, is that you don't know whether or was something else happening. I mean, a, a basic pre-post a study could be, well, look at what's happened in Queensland. Oh, we locked down on this date and then we had a few COVID cases and then we didn't have any. So you could argue, oh, well, the, yeah. the lockdown worked or... Well, how do you know? I mean, it could just be that there weren't really that 
many cases and the Queensland Health got onto it straight away and they did the contact tracing, the lockdown may not have been necessary. Who knows? And if you don't test anybody, then you're not going to find yeah. any new cases. You know. <laughs> well, I think they are testing. Let's hope they are. But it's I, that, I think there's that fallacy called the, is it the post hoc ergo propter hoc fallacy? I can't say I've heard of that one. But it basically means because of this, then that. So you yeah, think right. that because this preceded that, then that was the cause of it. And we know that you know that's that's not necessarily a, a good guide to to anything. So uh, yeah, um, so that that's not ideal. So you probably want some of the other. You want a systematic review, ideally, or a randomised control trial, or a quasi-experimental study. Okay, so that's the evidence hierarchy. Another thing we should I should have covered but I haven't yet is that there's this thing called the replication cr- crisis in psychology and also economics to an extent that you'll see results come out in the literature or they'll get a there'll be a lot of publicity about them and later on they turn out to be bogus so it could be like you know studies that show oh well uh, eating eating chocolate or something reduces your risk of, uh, you know, getting, I don't know, whatever disease. Or, I don't know. <laughs> well, you know, those sort of studies, you hear yeah, about yeah. them from time to time. Or drinking a glass of wine each night can reduce your risk of heart disease. And, well, I mean, that's one study. Uh, who knows if you can replicate that? Who knows how uh, applicable that is and uh, whether that's uh, – I mean, I shouldn't talk about that because that's outside my domain of expertise <laughs> – but, that's but just the, an example a, of yeah, yeah yeah so i mean and, and to hear it from different sources you know so from hearing just from just one source or the same kind of source all the time i think is problematic i, I think being open to hear different points of view uh is really important where good debate comes in you know i think um yeah that is certainly there's not a great deal of it around at the moment yeah exactly actually one thing we haven't mentioned was the ooda loop we sort of referred to it and um, at the beginning, so that this was a military, um, just briefly, this was a military system, if you like, which uh, you mentioned to me, which I hadn't heard of. So if I get it right, it's observe, orientate, decide, and then act. And then you go back to the start of it. That's the loop. You go back to, then after you've acted, go back to observe, yeah. orientate, decide, uh, decide, and act. Which, And so that, I thought, that's really cool. I love that stuff where you can sort of like, you know, have something that you can, a little process that you can go through. And of course, it's not always going to be straightforward or easy. But I imagine with military obviously being a lot of stressful situations, that's something that they can rely on to sort of like have a, that's a, a sort of decision system, if you like, or a, a way of operating that can help them make decisions or, you know, work out what's going on. I don't know if we can apply that to outside the military situation, but that's, you know, when, initially when that, uh, when, when I, I made that comment about you know how do we believe in what we believe or how do we you know decide what's true or not something like the OODA loop you know I'm sure there's something out there that we can apply in simple principle to you know making fair judgment or um, assessment of what any sort of given situation is. I guess what I could say in response to that Tim is that if we don't understand the world properly then we probably won't be around much longer right so I mean we do need to come to the truth, we do need to figure out what's going on or we might do silly things, right? We might yeah. ignore a pandemic, for example, and then we have a lot of people get a serious disease and die, okay? So, um, well, I mean, you know, yeah, worst case scenario. I mean, like we're living in a, in a bad disaster movie right now. This is like, you know, this these kind of things have been raised and, of course, they've happened in different parts of the world already, and we won't all be wiped out from this, but it is a good yeah. lesson to learn from, okay, well, you know, what can we do better and what things may change uh, in the future? Exactly. So it's about, yeah, trying to figure out the facts and, uh, yeah, always evaluate what we know, be be sceptical about things, but, yeah, challenge hypotheses, but at the same time recognise where that's where there's that consensus and uh, and... We really have to trust in that consensus, hope, trust in the scientific process. We hope that over time, I guess experience has shown that scientists do correct their mistakes. There could be problems at any point in time, right? We could be getting things wrong, but over the long run, the expectation is that we will more and more learn the truth about the world. Yeah, and for instance, looking at the OODA loop, the A in ACT, doing something, 
is the critical part of that because, you know, it's all very well just talking about it and just, you know, hypothesizing, which of course is important, but at some point there has to be an action from that, you know, and then, you know, have another look yeah. at it, see where it is, you know, the hypothesis. So it all sort of, for me, it filters into the same thing, you know, of being being really careful about being right or 100% right. Yeah. You know, I think that's where, where we have, if there's a lesson to learn, I feel, from all of this is um, we don't deal in absolutes very often, if at all. Mm. There's, there's very few things. So it, being the best so far, yeah, yeah, being the best so far and being open to what might be better is possibly a good way forward. Absolutely. Okay, Tim, we better wrap up there. I we think uh, I think that's a good spot to wrap <laughs> up. If you're listening in the audience and you've got any thoughts, then please get in touch. I'll try and clarify anything I need to clarify in the show notes. But if you have any questions, get in touch, any comments, any thoughts, I'd be interested in what you think about this issue. How do we know what is true? Are there things that you're concerned about? Have you noticed anything as a yeah, if you've got if you've got thoughts on any of these issues that we've raised, then uh, please do get in touch. Contact at Economics Explored. Tim, anything before we go? No, it's all good. I think I've uh, I think um, there's there's plenty out there, and I, I do believe everything works out in the end. You know, things always end up the right way up. I believe, Until they don't. I believe in <laughs> I believe that most people are good, and most people do the right thing. And I think if if you hand on a heart, think you're doing the right thing, then that's the best you can do. Excellent. Let's end on a positive note. Tim Hughes, <laughs> thanks for your time. Thanks, Gene. It's been a pleasure. Very good. Okay, that's the end of this episode of Economics Explored. I hope you enjoyed it. If so, please tell your family and friends and leave a comment or give us a rating on your podcast app. If you have any comments, questions, suggestions, you can feel free to send them to contact at economicsexplored.com and we'll aim to address them in a future episode. Thanks for listening. Until next week, goodbye.